0: Thank you guys, that, that was awesome. I gotta tell you guys, um, I'm excited this week. It's finally cooled off. Feel good wearing flannels. I'm a Midwest guy at heart. I've been in Texas for 10 years, but as soon as weather comes out where I can wear flannels, I'm like at my happiest, still at my happiest. I ran away from the great state of Ohio because I hated winter. That doesn't mean that I don't like the cooler weather. So I'm stoked to be with you guys today. Last week, uh, if you guys weren't here, uh, we talked about the authority of, of Scripture, and we talked about how Scripture alone has to be the way in which we understand God's work in the world. If our authority comes from any other place other than Scripture, we're always going to find ourselves lost. And this week, we're going to continue on in our series on the five solos by studying grace and kind of helping to define God's grace and we're looking back really at 500 years of history in order that we might understand how to live today. And to, Today, we, we are followers of Jesus. We are part of Crosstalk. We're part of Cypress Creek Church here in Wimberley, Texas. And we have to ask the question, what does that mean? What does that mean? And in order for us to do that effectively, we have to understand our history which is something that quite frankly most of us in school, I would say for the vast majority, maybe other than Gunter, hated history class. Hated history class. And I know I did. It was really a struggle for me to, to want to be involved in that. And I often find uh, when we broaden that out from school to everyday life, that, that people, they move from Jesus to like cross talk in 2020 without any idea of what happened that entire time in between. And I, am, I was very much one of those people who had no sense of history. And I think our world in general is that way right now. We, we have this emphasis on being present right here in the here and now, and we've forgotten a lot of the lessons of the past. And you know, I, I have two grandmothers, one on each side of my family, both of which are like deep, into like family ancestry, like way deep into it, no, like five or six generations back. And quite frankly, I don't care, (laughs) don't care at all. But in like spending time with them in in listening to their stories, I begin to understand more and more of of who I am and what it means to be a product of the Wilhelms and of the Roars and one of the cooler stories and the only really story that I remember is my great-great-grandfather, Uh, He immigrated to the United States because he accidentally killed a guy in a boxing match in Germany. And that one's like pretty neat to me. And so I sit back and I'm like, man, no wonder I got like a good, like left jab, you know, like (laughs) maybe I should have been a boxer. And really what it does for me in understanding like familial history is gives me a sense of like pride in who I am. It gives me a sense of understanding my heritage and how I can be like a representative of the generations that have come before me. And I only really acted in ignorance beforehand. And and what I've found is that oftentimes Christians are ignorant of our own history as well. And we know maybe a little bit from those history classes that we took in like middle school and high school. And maybe some of you guys had to fulfill a couple of credits at Texas State. But really, we, we don't have any clue, right? And so we're celebrating we're celebrating this Saturday, actually, the, the anniversary of the Reformation, the, of the day that Martin Luther took his 95 theses and he nailed them to the door of the Wittenberg Church. And we need to understand more of the context surrounding that if we really want to understand the depth of what that meant for us today. And so that's what we're going to do today is we're going to take uh, a very short dive into history um, because it's important for us to put the context around those around those events. And I have a good friend who does this super fast uh, church history in under 5 minutes. Deal with a super helpful illustration and I was going to show you guys the video of it and I found it on the internet and it was like terrible quality. So you guys are getting like my very poor version of that. So I'm letting you guys know that like not original content here. I'm like regurgitating the history books in the way that it's been told to me. And so what we're going to do is we're going to go through 2000 years of history from Jesus to crosstalk. And my goal is to do it in less than five minutes, less than five minutes. And so really what we've got here, right? We've got this starting point. We've got this starting point of Jesus, right? So he, he is born, he lives, he does his ministry and he dies, right? That's That's it, from born in the year zero to three, depending on your calendar, to he dies in 33 to 37, depending on the calendar. If you guys don't know, the calendar we use today was not finalized till the mid 1800s. So it's like all kind of messy way back then. But so 33 to 37, right? He dies on the cross. And then when he raises again, when he raises again, he goes and we see in the book of Acts that he says that you will be my witness in Jerusalem, which is the town they lived in, in Judea and Samaria, which are the surrounding states. And then he says to the ends of the world, which is indeed what happened, right? And so we see he ascends in in the book of Acts. And then what happens? Peter preaches in Jerusalem for the first time. And when Peter preaches, we see that hundreds, literally thousands of people come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ as their Lord and savior. Now those thousands of people then go home to their neighboring towns and their neighboring states of Judea and Samaria, and they begin to share the grace of God to the people around them. And that broadens out It begins to affect the whole world. We see, do you guys know who the first convert to Christianity outside of Israel was? Anybody good at their Bible history? It was not a Roman. That is the, that's the other, like those are the kind of the two answers. It was an Ethiopian eunuch, an African. And the first church ever to be planted outside of Israel was in Africa. But because we are so Eurocentric in our approach to history, we have no idea. We see that Thomas, Thomas, when he leaves Israel to share the good news, it's believed that he went to India. And when he went to India, he started the Thomas Church there in India. And generally we think of India as a Muslim or a Hindu country, but really the Christian church has been in India for 2,000 years. And so we move from there and we look at the history of the church for the next 300 years. So we go from from Jesus over here, and I'm trying to stay out from in front of the whiteboard. Uh, We go from Jesus here to the first 300 years, the church looked a lot like your community groups do a lot like your community groups do, what was happening is that faith was taking place in the home. Faith, the faith communities were centered around the home. And so what, what they did is they read the collected scriptures, they prayed together, and they worshiped together. And the really cool part of that is that in the first 300 years of Christian history, every 100 years, the church grew by 40%. Every hundred years, the church grew by 40% for the first 300 years that it existed. And you wonder why we do community groups the way we do them, right? (laughs) And so we have this turning point here in the year 300 where there's a guy named Constantine. And Constantine was a Roman emperor and he really paved the way here in the year 300 for the Christian faith to become legal throughout the world. And when it becomes legal, what we see for the first time is we see Christian churches and buildings being built. For the very first time, there's the institution of the church, and the church begins to become organized, and really what happens is it begins over the next 700 years to wrestle with the issues of theology in a very real way in front of everyone. And then we get to the year 1,000 here, right here in the year 1,000, and there was something really major that happened right here, right around 1,000. And what happened is, A bunch of people got together and they couldn't decide where the center of the church was supposed to be. Some people said that the center of the church was supposed to be in Rome. Others said that it was supposed to be in Constantinople. And what happened is what is called the Great Schism here at the year 1000. And really what happened here is that the Eastern Orthodox Church, and so if you are Russian or maybe Greek in history, maybe you grew up your heritage Falls in the Eastern Orthodox Church, which is based out of Constantinople, and then for the rest of us, most of us Westerners, we base ourselves out of the Church out of Rome, and so this Church out of Rome is really where we want to zoom in because this is what really takes place here. And so in the 13 to 1400s, the Church began to get off course a little bit, and in getting off course. really it's theology kind of got out of balance and it began to require things of people that were not in scripture, right? And so we see this moment where where the church has gone off track and this is not to to like speak ill of the Catholic church. The, The Catholic church has acknowledged this and stated that they were off track in this. And so the Catholic church goes, whoa, our theology is way off in this moment. And something really cool happens in the year 1400. In the 1400, and we've talked about this, the, the printing press is invented. And so for the very first time, people have access to the scriptures in their home. They're not reliant on someone else to teach them the word of God, they can read it for themselves. And so here is where we see Martin Luther, a young monk reading scripture for himself and going, whoa, and noticing inconsistencies between the way in which the church was acting and what he was reading. And right there in the year 1500 is when we see the Protestant Reformation happen. And when the Protestant Reformation happened, we see that in the church we had, I'm gonna come down to you guys because I didn't want to lug this up there. Uh, What happened here in 1500 is you had the church. We have three institutions of authority in the church. And these three are going to be that scripture, tradition, tradition, and leaders. Scripture, tradition and leaders are the three methods of authority that we have in the church. And what happened here in the 13 to 1400s is that the picture looked more like this, so scripture, tradition and leadership. And so what was happening is that the leaders were making decisions that were not backed by scripture during this time frame leaders and traditions were trumping what scripture was saying. So the church ended up in a spot where they were actually selling indulgences. Indulgences were basically money that you could give to the church that would assure your ticket to heaven. And you see, when this happens, when we get to a spot where leaders and traditions trump scripture, we're totally missing the gospel, right? And so when Martin Luther enters in and he reads scripture for the first time, this is what we talked about yesterday, that the uh, last week, we see that it's supposed to look like this with scripture, tradition, and leaders here. The tradition and the leaders of the church are to fall under the authority of scripture. And so what you get here when leaders trump scripture is you find a place that is absent of grace. It's condemnatory and it's judgmental because it's based on human rule and human logic and human law and not based on what we find in scripture. And that's the importance for us. That's the importance why we started with scripture alone last week. Scripture alone is our authority for understanding God's work in the world. And in that scripture, when we open those pages, we see something for the very first time. And it's the same thing that Martin Luther saw in 1500. He saw written all over these pages, grace, unmerited favor that God bestows upon his people. That our ticket to heaven is not dependent upon our income or our ability to pay our penance, but our salvation is dependent upon Christ alone, right? And in there, we find this unmerited favor because we all fall short. And this is the great danger for us. And this is why we talked about last week of scripture being our authority is because when the leader is more important than the scripture, I can get on stage and I can say whatever I want without you guys being able to say, wait, hold on, that's bad theology. And so the great corrective of the Reformation is that it put scripture back as the authority in understanding God's work in the world. And now traditions are still important, right? Traditions are really what convey the message to us. And so we look at traditions from communion and baptism, and those are essential for us as as followers of Jesus. And leaders are also important because leaders Set the direction. They help us to understand more of who God is. They they speak truth, but it all comes through this lens of Scripture. And so, what we see as I finish my timeline here is that from the year fifteen hundred, the year fifteen hundred to the year two thousand and twenty, we see that the Reformation takes hold and it takes off around the world. And when it takes off around the world, we see the growth of the church that we see today. And so, no matter what, whether you are Episcopalian or Presbyterian or Baptist or Lutheran, we all come from the same family tree. And that family tree is based on the same five solas. Scripture alone, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, and to the glory of God alone. And so when we go from Jesus to crosstalk, we begin to see the heritage that is such an integral part of our faith then it helps us to define who we are today. And we see in this corrective from Martin Luther that one of those solace begins to stand out in how we are to understand God's attitude towards us. And that is an attitude of grace alone. And so when Martin Luther opened the pages of the Bible, where did he find this? Well, he found it in Ephesians 2. And so if you guys wanna flip there with me, we're gonna start here in verse one. And it says, as for you, You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. In other words, Paul just called the Ephesians out, right? He called them out and he said, really, really what you're saying here is if you look seriously at this issue that all of us are sinful and broken. All of us, have missed the mark when it comes to how we live. When we define sin at its, at its root level, what it means is, is it means to miss the mark. And so no matter what we do, sin has twisted our desires so that even when we are working with the best intentions, we miss the mark. Because acting out of ourself, we are always selfish and self-serving in the way that we act. It says in verse three, all of us, also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. And those are really harsh words, right? Paul doesn't pull any punches when he says that. And the crazy part, and I don't know if you guys notice it up there, is that he just broadened that out to us. This is no longer directed to the church in Ephesus or the Ephesians, but he's talking about us now. All of us also lived among them at one time. And so when someone presses it on us, when Paulina says to JD, JD, you are a sinner, my first reaction is to, one, deny, no, I'm not. And then the second piece of that is then I start comparing myself. Am I as bad as this person? Am I as bad as this person? Am I as bad as this person? And we are so callous to that sort of talk that really... I begin immediately to evaluate myself against others, but more specifically against Paulina. She's calling me a sinner, then I have to somehow prove that I am better than Paulina, that I am not as much of a sinner as Paulina. There's us missing the mark right there. And so oftentimes the easiest way for us to understand truths like this is through stories through stories we begin to see patterns and we can apply them to our lives in ways that are super super helpful. And Jesus talked about grace a lot during his ministry. And he used parables to tell those stories and one of those is super important for us to remember when we talk about grace. And that is the parable of the prodigal son. And if you guys remember the son, the son goes to his father and he and he asks him for his inheritance. He says, dad, can I have your inheritance? And really, if, if you understand how inheritance works, you only get it after they pass away. What he's saying is, dad, I wish you were dead. Give me my money now. Dad, I wish you were dead. Give me, my, give me my half of the inheritance. And so the father, being very gracious, gives him his half of the inheritance. And he goes off and it says he goes to a foreign land and the Bible tells us that he squanders his wealth on wild living are the exact words, on wild living. And then he kind of comes up for air and realizes that he's broke, that he has no money. And now he has to find a job. And the only job that he can find is slopping pigs. And for a Jewish person, this is incredibly disgraceful that he would be caught slopping pigs. And so he's sitting there and he's in the pig trough and he goes, oh my gosh, my father's servants have it better than me my father's servants have it better than me. And so he starts uh, to decide to go home and he's gonna walk home and on his way home, he starts to practice his line and he goes, father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm not worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And so he's walking and he's repeating this to himself. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm not worthy to be called your son. Father, I've sinned against all of this line, and he goes all the way. And what the story tells us, and what's crazy about this is that he, the story tells us that the father sees him coming. The father sees him coming. And the father has every right at this moment to yell, to scream, to reject his son, because not only did his son basically wish him dead, but then he went off and he squandered that inheritance. But the father, it says, it says that the father saw him coming, recognized him from a long way off, and he ran to him. The father ran to him. And, it, and at this time, men of, men of wealth, it was incredibly disgraceful for them to run. It was a huge dishonor to run. And not only that, if you've ever seen someone try to run in a tunic, it's real goofy, Right? But the story tells us that he runs, and he runs, and he catches up to his son, and his son starts his line, and he goes, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you, and the father cuts him off, gives him this big old hum, locks him to the ground, and then turns to his servants, and he says to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet, bring the fattened calf and, and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the Son of Mine was dead and is now alive. He was lost, but is now found. He was lost, but is now found. And we understand Jesus' story now when we get to Ephesians because we realize that grace is given in spite of ourselves and not because of ourselves. Grace is given in spite of ourselves not because of ourselves. We see that the activity of our God is the activity of one that is seeking, a God who is seeking us out. And if you look at the parable of the prodigal son, it's in the set of three parables. The first parable being about a lost coin the second being about a lost sheep, and then the third being about the lost son. And we understand God more in his character through those parables because we see the picture that is being painted of our God as a gracious God, which is exactly the opposite of how so many of us grew up with this picture of God as this condemnatory, judgmental God waiting to smite us because of our sin. But God is saying, oh my gosh, you were lost but now you are found. My son was dead, but now he's alive. That is the nature of our God that continues in our disobedience, in our rebellion, in our rejection to say yes to us. And Martin Luther read these passages and he said, wait a minute, this isn't what I'm being taught. But because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. He restored us to something that was lost because of our disobedience in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not from yourselves. It is a gift from God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Martin Luther saw that. He saw it and he began to say this is incredible. Why are we not telling people about this? And as I was thinking through and praying through how to convey this idea of grace today, I was talking to Taylor, and I'm going to invite her up right now. And Taylor um, was telling me this story that really struck me with with the essence of God's character and an essence of grace. And so I'm just going to let her tell her story here.
1: (laughs) Help. Thanks. There you go. Um, so yeah, probably about seven years ago or so in college, um, I had this opportunity to go to Africa and I took a leap and went, I knew nobody, so I ended up on a team of like 12 women, which was kind of unheard of, we were supposed to have some guys on the trip um, for safety measures, but We ended up, all girls, headed to a country that we'd never been to before. We went to Liberia because we were supposed to go down to Uganda, but it was an election year, so they could uh, not promise any safety. It was really, really bad at the time. So we went to Liberia. Liberia is on the horn of Africa, if you guys don't know. So... um, we had a great time there that week, but there early on into our first night, I was sitting around and this little girl came up to me and in very broken English was saying, you're so pretty, you're so pretty. And I was saying, thank you. You know, I, I think you're beautiful. And she said, no, no, you're pretty. Don't walk home alone tonight. And i said, okay, I won't. I'll definitely, you know, walk home with some of the other girls. Thank you. Um... And then a woman pulled me aside at dinner and said, hey, has anyone told you guys if something goes down while you're here during your stay, whatever you do, don't call the government, essentially. Don't call the police. Don't call the federals. It would be safer for you to take um, refuge in a local village, to run away and to hide in the brush or to go find a local and they'll take you into their home. But don't call the government. So it was extremely corrupt, they were still recovering, there was a lot of um, genocide refugees that had fled to Liberia, so there was a lot of violence. So um, it was fine, the whole week, um, two weeks went by, whatever, we ended up on our way to the airport and, um, we had paid, our, the organization that I had gone through had paid specific cab drivers to um, take us around and, again, kind of try to ensure some safety. Um, his name was George. We became really good friends with George. And we were on the way to the airport, and uh, he, there's two cars in front of us that were also our group, and they pulled off into the brush really fast. And we saw suddenly that there was a barricade across the road. And George said okay, ladies, I need you to pay attention to me. Take your money, put it in a separate part of your um, clothing. Take your IDs and your passports and hide them somewhere um, separate from your money. These are the Federals. And we were like, we don't see anyone. We just see spikes on the road. And, you know, what is that? And then they ambushed our cars from the brush. So there was all these men. There was chaos. There was screaming. There were men standing there strapped with AK-47s pointing at our windows of our car, and I had never stared down the barrel of a gun, obviously, in my life. And I just remember thinking, this is it. This is okay. This is it. Like, I've come to peace with it. It's okay. Um, and so George is trying to intervene. He's like, don't make eye contact. Just remain calm. Don't, don't open the doors. Don't do this. Don't do that. Um, and then he did something really weird, and he he got pulled from the car and he he fell to the ground and he was holding something in in the air and he was just screaming, just take it. It's everything. Just take it. It's everything. It's, it's everything. Please just take it. And so they did. And then the guys, um, let us go by and they let the other two cars go by as well. Um, and when we got to the airport, I said, George, what, what did you give them that could have possibly, you know, saved us today? What, what did you give them? And he said, well, um, I ended up giving them my wallet, which was all the money that we had given him to basically taxi us around. And um, I said, but I remember you telling us er earlier in the week that you love doing these trips because um, it gives you enough money to eat for the rest of the year. You see, George had a family back home, a wife and multiple kids. And it was enough money to pay for chicken for the rest of the year, which is a really big deal in order to get protein um, from his village. So... I said, what are you going to do now? And he said, I'm not sure, but I just want you to know that it doesn't matter. And we were like, it does matter. So we're scrambling. We're trying to give him anything we had left. We were like, George, it does matter. It does matter. We're weeping. We understand the magnitude of this. He has no idea where the next meal is going to come from. He just literally gave everything he had to save our lives. And he turned around, and he said something that I'll never forget. And he said, no, you're far more worth it. You're far more worth it. And I just thought, no, because in my dumb American brain, I'm gonna go eat McDonald's in an airport that's gonna cost five bucks and maybe. And you're not gonna know where your next meal comes from and you're not gonna be able to provide for your family. And the reason that you do this job for Americans is so you can do just that. And all he kept saying is hugging us and kissing us on our cheeks and saying, no, you're worth far more than that. And I just remember thinking, we came in total strangers. He adopted in lots of daughters, and then he stood in defense and said, here's everything I have. You're far more worth it. Yeah.
0: Hmm. Thanks, Taylor. Um, yeah, George's words struck. That's the first time I heard that story was this week. Um, and it strikes a chord deep in me because without a man like George, I wouldn't have a wife today. Um, and that, and that hits me at a very deep emotional level. But then you broaden that out and you say, gosh. The God that we're reading about, the God that tells the story about the prodigal son and the lost coin and the lost sheep, the one who says that it's by grace that we are saved, he is saying the same thing to us. That he didn't count his one and only son as more worth it than us. He said, no, you are far more worth it. You are far more worth it. And it blows me away. And as we start to close tonight, I want to share the story of a man with you guys, a man named John Newton. If you guys don't know John Newton, uh, he's the man who wrote um, the song Amazing Grace. And if you guys haven't heard that story, I want to give you guys the Cliff Notes version. John Newton um, was a slave trader. He was a slave trader. He made his living by selling human beings as property. And he was off uh, the coast of Africa, and he got caught in a, in a massive storm. He got caught in this really, really big storm, and the, the boat was sinking. The boat was sinking, and it was his turn to, to take his time at the captain's wheel. And the storm was so bad that his, his crew had to tie him to the mast so that he wouldn't get thrown overboard. And he's sitting there and his shift was 12 hours long from 12 noon to midnight. And the whole time the boat is taking on water. The whole time the boat is progressively sinking. And it's in that moment that you're in a storm like that. You have to start to think about what's important. And in that moment, he had this thought. He remembered, just like the prodigal son, a God he was told about as a young child, a God full of grace and love, a God that could save him. And in that moment, he cried out to God for the very first time, cried out, God, save me, and accepted Jesus as his Lord in that moment. And the Lord Lord brought him through. He was saved. And you fast forward in John Newton's life and you see the effect of grace take hold all throughout his life. He stopped selling slaves. He walked away from the slave trade. And not only that, he became one of the biggest abolitionists in the world, speaking out against slavery. And it's that experience of the grace of God who says, you are far more worth it that can only affect change in our life in that way. You see, the essence of sin is not all the bad stuff we do. It's simply no and turning and walking away from God. The essence of sin is just us saying no. And here's the important thing about our God is that our God is a God who pursues us. A God who says yes, no matter how many times we say no. And it's in that space that we understand that that grace, that same grace is available to us and we respond to it. We call it all sorts of things, right? We call it coming to faith in Jesus Christ, accepting Jesus as our Lord and Savior. We say, coming like name it, we've got a Christianese for it, right? But simply, it's the act of turning and saying yes to the God who has been there all along, the act of us saying, God, what you want, I want. And it's in that moment that it makes all the difference. And I don't know if you guys came here today already knowing Jesus, But I want to tell you guys, the same grace that that was available 2,000 years ago and Martin Luther discovered 500 years ago is the same grace that's offered to us today. It's the same grace that is offered to us today. And maybe you came here and you've never accepted Jesus before. Today is a really good day. Today is a really good day to say yes to the God who has been saying yes to you since the moment you were born. And maybe you came here today knowing Jesus, but for a long time, you've walked away from him. Today is a really good day to turn and to say yes, because that grace is available to us. And it comes without, for the very first time in our life, strings attached. It comes without the requirement of you to do enough or to bring enough or to accomplish enough to deserve it. But God says, yes, I want you and I want you exactly the way that you are, today is a good day to say yes to the one who's been saying yes for 2,000 years. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see.